Welcome to North of the Shire, your podcast on all things Lord of the Rings. Although at this stage of the game, I think it's mostly about the Middle Earth Strategy Battle Game by Games Workshop. I'm your host, Don, and this is episode 35. My co-host today is, uh, well, it's actually nobody. I'm here all alone today. Andrew is still trapped under a large pile of dirty diapers, and Garrett and Chris and I have all been crazy busy with work lately, so I've just not been able to schedule any recording time with either of those guys. I've been working on a new project on my own, so I just put some more work into that, and it turned into a full episode. This will be nothing like our normal format, so there won't be any hobby catch-up, listener questions, or analysis of competitive play. It's more about exploring the narrative side of the hobby and me trying to stretch my creative wings a little bit. Okay, so what am I going to be talking about in this episode? I'm going to present a new Battle Companies related segment for the podcast that I'm starting. I'll be working through creating an intro theme for this segment. I'm going to talk about the Battle Company faction that I'm going to be playing. I'll take a bit of a deep dive into the path of the sorcerer. I'm going to talk about my first game with this company. I'm going to discuss a couple of conversions that I've been working on for my heroes. And I'm going to end off by talking a little bit about my personal perspective on the MESBG hobby and how our hobby can be a reflection on who we are as people. Also, all through this episode, I'll be making references to a new community edition of Battle Companies that's been circulating around and giving some thoughts on that. Anyway, let's get on to the topic of today's podcast. I thought I'd actually put together a little segment that I could do on my own. Because I'm thinking Andrew is going to have a little tougher time than he thinks getting back to the podcast full time. So I figured I'd put something together that I can do on my own. And I've picked something that I've wanted to do for a long time. I just love battle companies. I think it's because it's an excellent meeting point between a role-playing game and a miniature game. Two of my favorite things. In battle companies, you get to use all your MESBG models and terrain from the core game, but also get to weave a narrative story around a small group of heroes and warriors and watch them gain experience and become more powerful. I think for me, this is the real sweet spot for the hobby. Having said that, there is one thing about battle companies that does frustrate me a little. Is it just me or does it seem most times when you start a new battle company, it only lasts for a few games and then you drop it for one reason or another? It seems like almost every time I play, I'm starting a new company. I think it's just a symptom of not having a regular group of people to play the game with, and the rather poor balancing mechanism between companies of different strengths doesn't help matters. 
When battle companies start to get far apart from one another in raiding, people just don't play each other. After all, is it worth a few extra influence to play a game that you know full well you're going to get stomped in? So you just end up constantly starting new companies rather than leveling the ones you've already started. I think the most I've ever played with one company is seven or eight games. I had the idea of running a battle company and sticking with it for a good long while and seeing what became of it. What would happen to the heroes if I played, say, 20 games with the same company? By this point, the starting heroes, if they were still alive, may even be approaching the maximum level of their path. Certainly, the company will have reached its maximum size and have some really nice equipment. It might just mean that I have to go looking for games outside my immediate friends to find other companies of a similar level and experience, and I'm totally up for that. On the modeling side, I'm much more inclined to convert miniatures and build a display board if I know I'm going to be sticking with the battle company for the long haul. So that's my goal here. Play 20 games with the same battle company. Hopefully against as many different opponents as I can find, but I realize there will probably be quite a few repeat opponents. There are 18 different missions in the battle company's book, and I'd like to try to play all those 18 missions as well. I'm going to call this segment Shadow of the North. And this first one is going to be a bit longer than typical as there's a lot to cover. Explaining what it's all about and figuring out the scope of what I'm going to do and how I'm going to deliver it in an audio format. I really like the creative side of the hobby, so this is where I'm most comfortable. Of course, this is about a battle company, so there are going to be games, at least 20 I hope. I also want to jump into converting some hero models and maybe warrior models as well. And I can show some of that on our Facebook page. I also wanted to try telling some of the story in a narrative way. Maybe I can do that with the battles as I think the war's aftermath part is just going to have to be done in a straightforward kind of reporting way. Having said all that, I think the first task on the list was to make an intro theme for this segment. I need a theme and then I like to do two other short sound bites that I could play at the start and finish of the narrative sections of the segment. We record on a website called Soundtrap, which is primarily intended for recording music, but also can be used for podcasting as well, obviously. Like anything, the site has pros and cons, and one of the pros is that it's loaded with hundreds of pre-recorded musical sounds and also just random sound bites. So I dug in and started playing around with different sounds to see what I could come up with for a theme. I wanted something that had a real lonely and gloomy feel to it. I thought I put together a fairly long clip for the intro segment that I could talk over. When I say long, I mean like maybe 20 seconds or so. I'd probably make the clip like quite a bit longer than that and then I could just pick the part that I wanted to talk over. So after poking around for a while, I found some cool sounds. Wind. Marching feet. A horn. 
dogs barking. Metal rattling. And ghostly noises. This ended up being my first little hobby project of of this whole thing and I ended up fooling around with all these sounds for quite a while but eventually put them all together and this is what I came up with. This is much longer than what I actually need but I'll just play the whole thing for you and it's about a minute long. also made another short sound clip to start any narrative sections, which sounds like this. And lastly, I made another short clip to end the narrative sections, which sounds like this. But this was going to be orcs at March, so I thought I needed to have some voices and grunting and groaning in the background. So I put on my best orc voice and recorded a whole bunch of small clips along with some like heavy breathing and grunting. I'd end up overlaying all these sounds and mixing them together to come up just with a cacophony of voices underneath the theme. And here's a few samples. Pick up the pace, you maggots! <laughs> this is as fast as we can go! <laughs> I got a leg wound. When I put all those voices together, mix them up and overlay them on top of all the grunting and heavy breathing, this is what it sounds like. <laughs> Get a move on. Pick up the pace, you maggots. Where there's a whip, there's a whip. I can't go no faster. Where we going anyway? My feet are sore. I smell bad. I got a leg wound. Oh, shut up. Nobody cares. Now I would just have to read some dramatic text over top of that theme at the beginning of each segment. Something like, Shadow of the North. A narrative journey about the adventures of a battle company. I know, really dramatic stuff. 
Well, let's stick all these parts together into one and see what this sounds like. Shadow of the North, a narrative journey about the adventures of a battle company. Well, is it obvious yet what battle company faction I've chosen here? Yeah, it's Angmar. Actually, Angmar is one of the factions in the battle company book that I always wanted to play, but never have. I always had a problem with the Angmar faction as published in the battle company's book. Admittedly, it's for a rather small and possibly silly reason, but it's one of those things that just struck a chord with me. It's simply that the published starting warband didn't include any wild wargs. I know, silly, right? Well, I'm a big fan of the wild warg chief, and I think that model was certainly one of the inspirations for the beast path in the Battle Company's book. And I kind of feel this path got the short end of the stick and that there aren't very many factions where you can start with a beast hero. Of all the factions in the game, I think Angmar should be right at the top for starting with a beast hero. A wild war chieftain in the making, as it were. Around the same time I had this thought, I was sent the first draft of a community edition of Battle Companies by the Middle Earth SBG Tabletop Simulator Community. Essentially, they've taken the current edition of the rules and really cleaned them up and added a few small tweaks to straighten out a couple of the bent rules and mechanics. Honestly, I was a little skeptical when I first saw it, but after reading through it, I've got to say that this is really good. Anyway, lo and behold, this new community edition of the game had addressed the problem with Angmar. Instead of starting with nine orcs, Angmar starts with seven orcs and two wild wargs. Amazing. I think one of the reasons the Games Workshop edition of the Angmar faction didn't include a wild warg in the starting company was because the beast path could get Harbinger of Evil. Combine that with the army special rules and with the fact they can get Deadmar Spectres and you have a pretty broken situation. So they kind of backed themselves into a corner there, and the easy way out was just to remove the Wild Warg from the starting lineup. Such a tragedy. Well, in the community issue, problem solved. Harbinger of Evil has been removed from the Beast Path and replaced with something else. Oh, and a second path was also added that Wargs and Spiders can take. The Stalker. Cool. 
I've always wanted to start with a beast hero, and after pouting about Angmar not starting with a warg for so long, that was definitely going to be one of my starting heroes. So yeah, a defense 4 hero that can't get armor or shield, how could I go wrong with that? Another thing in the game that I've avoided was the sorcerer path, because I think it looks quite weak compared to the other paths in the game. I'm not a huge fan of the spell selection that they have, as two of the three spells are similar in Transfix and Compel. Also, the way the game works is that heroes need to get KOs in order to gain experience, and I've always felt that these spells wouldn't really help too much with that. Okay, maybe a good Compel would indirectly help, but I think you know what I mean. The third spell, Instill Fear, isn't going to help much with this either, at least not as far as gaining XP goes. In the Sorcerer Path, three of the promotion slots are taken up by spells and another one for a heroic channel. It really kind of leaves them a little lacking. Sure, once they get the wizard staff they'll be fine, but until then they're going to struggle. However, having said all that, I really had a good idea of a loadout for an orc sorcerer and a good conversion idea as well. Okay, to be fair, it's not my idea at all, actually. It's something I saw on the YouTube channel, Anders Talks Hobbies. He's a friend from our local community here, and he's put together a series of really great videos on converting Angmar Orcs and Arnor Warriors, and I've been copying his conversion ideas as I thought they were so cool. I like converting orcs almost as much as I like battle companies. So my second hero was definitely going to be the sorcerer, come what may. Now with plans for two paths chosen, and me thinking they might be kind of weak, I decided to be all sensible about the last choice and go with the path of the general. After all, it's a Courage 2 faction, so having a hero to help keep my orcs from running away would be a good thing. Of course, all my heroes would need to get 5 XP before they were able to roll on their chosen path, but at least I had a plan. Alright, let's take a quick read through of the Angmar faction in Battle Companies. And uh, it's one of the things I really like about uh, Battle Companies is the factions are so small that it like takes no time at all to go through them. So let's start by like reading the little f fluff piece. As the power of the Witch King of Angmar grew, the realm of Arnor began to wane. Its once proud cities fell into ruin and disrepair, a prime target for the forces of Angmar to assail and conquer. Under the Witch King's command, orc warbands would attack these fallen cities, delivering them to the Dark Ruler for only a few orcs would need to prize these cities from the depleted forces of Arnor. These warbands were led by the most opportunistic of all the Angmar orcs, those whose main aim is to plunder, backstab, and murder their way to the head of the Witch King's army. Yet there were more than mere orcs in these warbands. Often the relentless cries of the orcs lured to them the spirits of those long since dead. Now bound to the power of the Witch King, these spirits would sometimes fight alongside the living, if the Witch King willed it. 
All right. So that is what Angmar is all about. So, okay, so I'm using the faction rules from the community edition rather than the uh, official Games Workshop one. Uh, so it's slightly different and I'll just read through it and I'll point out where the differences lie. Okay, so you're starting Battle Company. You start with seven orcs and two wild wargs. The orcs have three of them with shield, two of them with spear, one with two-handed weapon, and one with bow, and the two wild wargs. Um, your reinforcement chart, one big change they've made in this too is that reinforcements are no longer a static cost of three influence. They range from two influence to four influence, which is a really good rule because some of the charts provide a lot better results than others. So this one is three influence per roll. So your results are one, nothing. Two to three is a wild warg. So that is new here. It didn't used to be there. Four or five is an Angmar orc with choice of weapon. So that is also kind of new. You didn't used to get a choice. They used to tell you what you would get. Six is a special chart. The special chart is a one or a two is the orc tracker. Three or a four is an Angmar warg rider. And a five or six is the Dead Marsh Spectre, which is a rare three, which means you can only ever get three of them in your warband. A Dead Marsh Spectre cannot gain experience and therefore can never become a hero. Okay, what about advancements? So there are a couple or three advancements. There used to be only two. Angmar Orc with Bow can become an Orc Tracker. Angmar Orc with two-handed weapon can become an Angmar Warg Rider. So those both used to be in here. But now that we've added Wild Wargs to this faction, we have Wild Wargs can become an Angmar Warg Rider. So that's all right. The company hero upgrade is Gaze of the Dead. Resurrected by the dark power of the Witch King, the hero now possesses the ability to freeze the hearts of its enemies, leaving them rooted to the spot. Mm. During its move phase, the hero may target a single enemy model within six inches. The target must then take a courage test. If the test is passed, the target is unaffected. If the test is failed, the target may not move for the remainder of the turn. All right, that's pretty nice. Okay, so those are all of the rules for this faction. So what does that all mean? All right, let's kind of give an overview of this faction. So it's a faction that consists largely of crappy orcs. Sure, some of them can be riding wargs, and the trackers have an incredible shoot value of 4+, but they are still just crappy orcs. We can't even advance into a marginally better orc like a Moranin orc with a strength 4 and heavy armor. This faction is just stuck with the scum of the orcs. What's your problem, Bodo? Something is wrong with my sword. It's too sharp. 
I cut myself. The only true elite they have on their roster is the Dead Marsh Spectre, which is rare three, meaning you can only get three of them in your warband. However, this one model does really change the complexion of this warband. Its ability, a fell light is in them, will allow you to potentially move around enemy models. And its ability, Blades of the Dead, can help deal with models with a really high defense. If we also look at getting a couple of heroes with the Gaze of the Dead faction upgrade, this will also really change the way the Battle Company plays. Okay, so what are the pros of this warband? Well, they have a solid selection of war gear available to them. Warrior advancements are available, even if they aren't super fantastic. They do have cavalry and they start with some mobility having two wargs in their lineup. What about the cons? All of their models are strength three. This is a big con for this faction. Strength three is not a huge disadvantage early on as most things will be defense five, but later on it will become a problem. Also, all of the starting models are fight three. In fact, only heroes will be able to advance from fight three. All of the orcs and wargs here have low courage. And there's no good archery in this faction either. All right, I mentioned that this faction has a pretty good selection for war gear. So what exactly can they take? Well, they can take heavy armor and shield. Those two are like really important. A spear, also very handy, two-handed weapons, an orc bow, a throwing spear, and a warg as a mount. So not a bad selection at all. Definitely want to take the heavy armor for all your heroes who are allowed to take it, and as soon as possible. It's just a great choice to for only one point initially to raise your defense. As for equipment, what ones are kind of on my radar that I want to grab as soon as possible? I always really like the rally horn as it's always good to increase the chance of getting to the special chart. It's a bit pricey at five influence for this faction, but it means you don't have to keep a point of influence in your bank just in case you roll a one. If you get it early, it'll definitely pay for itself. Healing herbs would also be a handy thing to have around, just in case you have a bad game and have a lot of models knocked out. This will give you a plus one on all of your injury rolls. The company standard is also really good for this faction, um, just because it allows rerolls on failed courage tests. And as I mentioned earlier in the cons, a lot of courage too here. Also, Blade Poison I really like, uh, only available to e evil factions, um, but this is a really good one to give to all of your combat heroes and even some warriors. It's just so good for one influence. I'll leave it at that for now, and next time I'll go over um, how I plan to develop the Warband, the strategy we're aiming to employ, and 
potential creatures and wanderers that I might have join my warband. With my plans in hand, I set up a games day at a local gaming cafe with three friends so we could get to rolling some dice. We all showed up on a Saturday, set up a couple of tables, and each played two games with our new battle companies. We had all picked companies out of the aforementioned Community Edition Battle Company document, so they may be slightly different than the published Games Workshop version. If Games Workshop ends up putting out a new edition of Battle Companies, which I think they will, and it turns out to be different from this, we'll just make it work, not a big deal. Chris came with a Shire company led by a Dunedain, his son Charles brought a company from Dunland, and Garrett decided to bring Erebor and Dale. I added my Angmar to the mix, and we had two good and two evil companies to face off. We set up one table as the defend the gate scenario with the new dwarven gate I made a few months earlier. The other table which butted up against the back of the gate was set up as a dungeon or rather the interior of a dwarven hold. For this we used a really cool set of modular painted foam blocks that Chris had made along with the pieces from the plastic Moria terrain set. And both tables had a liberal amount of scatter terrain. We decided to play hold the line on the second table with one company trying to traverse across the table to the other side. I would play young Charles on the defend the gate scenario and the winner would enter the dungeon to play the winner of Chris and Garrett. The beginnings of the battle company known as Shadow of the North was far from glorious. As it happened, the Witch King had sent a small army south from Angmar towards Rivendell. They were ordered to raid the lands in the area and draw the elves out to battle. This was not a powerful force, just a couple of hundred orcs and other lesser creatures. Although the orc in command of this force didn't know it, this small army was acting as a distraction for a more important objective. Essentially, this force was being used as a pawn and being sacrificed to achieve some other goal, which is not part of this story. After the orcs burned down a couple of farmsteads, Elrond reacted as expected and sent out a force from Rivendell to intercept them. The battle that followed was short, and the army of orcs were soundly defeated. Many of the orcs were killed and the survivors scattered in all directions. The elves spent several days hunting down isolated groups of survivors. Some groups consisted of just a few orcs and others a few dozen. One such group came together and headed northeast towards the Misty Mountains. Zogmoth, a minor orc hero, had taken charge of these survivors and got them moving away from the site of the battle. 
After assuming the leadership role, he drove the small group of orcs and wild wargs hard, hoping to put as much distance between them and the elves. They were fortunate to have two wild wargs with them as they moved quickly, scouting ahead and behind, and allowed them to avoid the pursuing elves. One of the wargs, a hero in his own right, was even able to speak a few words and so could communicate with Zogmoth, albeit in a very crude way. As they moved along, the wargs were able to bring in one or two more individual stragglers to join the group. Finally, they came into the foothills of the mountains, and two more orcs emerged from a small patch of scrub to greet the band. One of the orcs carried himself with authority, although he was only of average size and had a sickly look about him. The other was one of the smallest orcs Zogmoth had ever seen, and followed after the other orc like a dog at his master's heels. Zogmoth walked forward to meet the newcomers. I see you managed to survive the massacre, Gash. You are fortunate that we found you first and not the elves. We are traveling through an abandoned dwarf horde that lies not far from here. Now that you have come, I will take command of this rabble and we can find shelter there while I think of what to do next. Don't make me laugh, Gash. I'm in command here and that's the way it's going to stay. By now, Zogmoth had walked right up to Gash and poked the other orc in the chest with his finger as he continued. You and your lapdog fall in with the others, and if you're lucky, I'll consider making you one of my sergeants. I know of your abandoned dwarf ruin. Seems like as good a place as any to hold up, but we will continue under my command. You get me? Very well, Zogmoth. You shall command. For now. The small group that now consisted of seven orcs and two wargs started off once again. Gash watched as Zogmoth issued orders to the wargs to continue scouting ahead. Zogmoth seemed to be a natural at, at leading troops. What a shame, as he would have to die, Gash thought. If this group was going to survive, there was only one orc here who would be in command. After hours of marching, they had passed through the hill country and were into the first parts of the Misty Mountains. Their destination finally came into sight as they rounded some cliffs in a low valley. Two massive dwarf statues flanked an opening into the mountain itself. Several stairs had been carved into the rock leading up to the entrance. They all walked up the stairs of the entrance and dropped to the ground, exhausted from the long march. But they had no sooner gained their breath when a group of wild-looking human warriors charged out of a small group of trees not far away. They ran headlong at the orcs, 
seemingly without any plan or regard for their own safety. Immediately, Zogmoth started issuing orders. On your feet and prepare to charge, but wait until I give the word. The humans ran up in a ragged line, and Zagmoth could see that some wore armor and carried shields, and some appeared to be completely unarmored. All right, boys, go after the ones without shields. Charge! The orcs sprang down the steps and countercharged the humans. Amazingly, Gash bore down on one of the wild-looking humans, and with the aid of a spearman, he was able to take that human out of the battle with a well-aimed strike. Two or three other humans fell to the orcs in the initial clash. Suddenly, all the humans and orcs were engaged with each other in an unorganized melee. Displaying some of his combat skill, Gash was able to trap another of the unarmored humans between himself and two of his friends. Showing some really heroic combat skills, he cut the human down himself and then ran to get into another combat. He engaged yet another human, peeling him off from a combat where an orc had been surrounded. Yet again, Gash was able to dispatch his opponent with ease, surprising even himself. The clash of weapons and armor continued for only a few more moments before the humans broke and ran, their injured members dragging themselves away from the battle as well. Zogmoth, who had not got a single kill in the battle, stood atop the stairs and raised his sword. Victory! Look at the human dogs run! Gash, covered in the enemy's blood, looked up at the orc leader and said quietly under his breath, Victory indeed, but with no help from you, Zogmoth. <laughs> So that was game one in the books. I wrote all this down in my log that I'll be keeping. Uh, Charles Dunland was the opponent and defend the gate was the scenario. My battle company rating at the start of the game was 108. I ended up winning this one and managed to knock out five of Charles' warriors and one of his heroes. Only one of my orc spearmen was knocked out, and he rolled miss next game. My would-be sorcerer, Gash, was the star of the show, getting three kills in this game. That was good for three experience, plus one more for winning the game and one for participating, which gave him five and a roll on the sorcerer path. I rolled the dice in front of my opponent and got an 11. Wise advice. Once per turn, the hero may allow one friendly model within six inches to re-roll a single d6 during the dual roll. Not bad at all. I'll definitely take that. But I need to remember that I could swap it out for my army-specific hero upgrade, Gaze of the Dead. 
Actually, I'm not sure how that one would work for a sorcerer, as it's also used in the movement phase, which is when I'd be casting my spells. So could he do both in the same phase? Hmm, not sure. As I took the sorcerer path, I also got an extra point of will and the ability to cast transfix on a 5+. Plus. My other two heroes managed to stay on their feet in this game, but couldn't keep up with gash and kills. Three of my warriors also managed to get kills, giving them the right to earn a name. The orc with the shield would be Mog, the orc with the spear, Tozag, and the orc with bow, Borgan. I received four influence for winning the game, so I bought heavy armor upgrade for Gash, my sorcerer, and also for my future general for a total of two influence. I got a spear for the bow-armed Borgan and a shield for the spear-armed Tozag. So that was all my influence spent. As there are no elite orcs in the warband, my plan was to give all my orcs two weapons. So essentially shield and spear or orc bow and spear for the most part. My rating at the end of this game was going to be 115. So I started with 108, I gained 5 for a new special rule, I gained 5 for a point of will, and I bought 4 points worth of gear for a total of 122, but then I have a guy worth 7 missing the next game. So it brings it to 115. We had a really fun first game playing Angmar versus Dunland, but with six of his guys knocked out and a couple missing the next game, young Charles wasn't too impressed with his force. Just like me to start out with a game versus a 12 year old to get a win, right? We put the loss down to his bad rolling, which was obviously due to the fact that his miniatures weren't painted. But after all, his Dunlin force is just led by a DIRTY HUMAN ANIMAL Alright, let's talk about the sorcerer path. I mentioned earlier that I thought this path looked a little weak and mentioned a few reasons why. I want to take a closer look at this path and look at the upgrades it has available, and I think you'll see where I'm going with this. I'll go through each upgrade and talk about each one. Okay, the first one, if you roll a two, is Master of Magic. Reroll ones when casting or resisting. One of the two most difficult results to get, so this is a great one for this path, as it will help you get your spells off in a game, but it won't help you knock out enemy models. Also, I'm not quite sure how to handle this one calculating points. Technically, it's not a special rule, as it's not listed as such in the rulebook, so it wouldn't actually increase the value of a model. Should I assume this is a loophole? and this should be considered as a special rule for calculating points? If that's the case, they should put a note here stating that this should be considered as a special rule, as just being a result on this chart doesn't automatically make everything a special rule. They actually resolve this situation with point values in the community edition by adding the proviso to the calculating rating section that says, for every other unique 
progression chart result that the hero has gained not covered here add five points i.e increasing the range of a general standfast will only ever be worth five points regardless of the number of times it has been upgraded so if you have a result on the progression chart that has multiple times you upgrade something and it's not covered under any other rule for increasing your points, it's just worth five. Whether you roll it once or you roll it two or three times, it's worth five. A three will give you instill fear. You gain this spell on a five plus cast and can get it a second time, which improves it to a four plus cast. This is a good spell which could help win games, but again, it won't help this hero gain any KOs. And again, this is not a special rule, so it doesn't increase your point value unless you're using the community edition, in which case they have that covered. Number four is a wound. Gain one wound up to a maximum of three. A great upgrade and will help keep your hero alive. I guess this will help indirectly get your hero some kills. It's worth 10 per upgrade. Once a model's attacks and wounds add up to a total of three or more, it will also increase the cost of your war gear. Five is resistant to magic, and you just gain that special rule, and it's worth five and pretty self-explanatory. Six is heroic channeling. Gain that heroic action. Not a special rule, so it doesn't increase the cost of your hero. Same problem. Channeled spells are more effective, so that's great. But sorcerers can only ever get one point of might, so you can only channel one spell in the entire game. Honestly, this ability should be given to this path for free, along with the one point of will and the transfix immobilize spell. That would free up the slot for some other improvement. If you roll a 7, you get Immobilize Transfix. Increase that spell to cast on a 4+, and again on a 3+, if you roll it again. This is improving your bread and butter spell, so that's great. But again, it's not going to help you get KOs. An 8 will give you either a point of might or a point of will. You can get a maximum of 1 point of might and 4 points of will. These will add 5 points per upgrade, and it's the only path that can get up to 4 will. The roll of a 9 will give you the Command Compel spell on the cast of a 5+, and you can get this a second time, which will improve that to a 4+, cast. This is a great spell, but honestly, I don't really like it for this path. You already have Immobilize Transfix, which makes this spell somewhat redundant in the path, in my opinion. I'd honestly rather see a different spell here. And again, it's not really going to help you get KOs. It will indirectly help, but not directly help you get KOs. The roll of a 10 will give you plus one courage up to a maximum of five. This will add five points per upgrade, and it's a solid roll uh, for a sorcerer, you know, especially for me for an orc. 11 is wise advice. Once per turn, the hero may allow one friendly model within six inches to reroll a single d6 during a dual roll. 
Very cool support rule for this hero. Again, though, it's not technically a special rule, so we have that same old problem again. But I really like this result. Last but certainly not least is a 12, one of the two hardest to get. Staff of Power. The hero may add a Staff of Power to their war gear. This is an amazing upgrade for this pass. A free point of will every turn for the spellcaster is fantastic. This should certainly increase the value of your hero, but again, it's not a special rule, so yeah, same thing. Okay, so we know what a sorcerer can get, but what can't they get? They can't increase their shoot value, nor can he get a decent bow, so he's never going to be much of an archer. He can't increase fight, strength, or the number of attacks, so he's never going to be much of a melee fighter either. Because of all the progression slots that are devoted to spells and magic, he's going to have one of the weakest stat lines of any path. So that really makes him a support hero. Probably a good idea to eventually put him on a mount, i.e. a warg. This way, if he has to go into combat, he can use the strength for the warg and can potentially get the charge bonus. Not to mention the additional mobility and the elblative armor effect the mount gives him. Anyway, I think after going through the progression chart, you can see this path, although a great addition to any battle company, it just doesn't have much killing power. So gaining experience may be a little tougher for this guy than for other paths. So I have to figure out how to make the most out of an orc taking this path. There is nothing stopping a sorcerer from taking heavy armor and a shield, and both are available in this warband. Even though this path can't get an increase to defense, this will get it up to defense 6, which is pretty solid when combined with a potential 3 wounds. Adding a spear to his kit will mean he can always get involved in combat, and he'll only ever have one attack anyway. He can use this from a supporting position. This way, when duels are won, he can always be the first one to try to roll to get the wound and that point of experience. Lastly, this guy needs some way to do wounds from range. Taking a bow is out, as it would mean dropping the shield, and that's not a worthwhile trade-off, considering he will never have more than a shoot of 5+. However, the one little diamond in the rough for this faction is that heroes have access to throwing spears, as war riders can take them as an option. So even though he's got a crummy 5 plus shoot, it's still very much worth it. Think of it as a spell that's free, has a range of 8, a 5 plus cast, and inflicts a strength 3 hit. It's really good for someone who's not really intended to get into melee anyway. That's easily worth the cost of 1 slash 5. I think, all things considered, I can definitely have a ton of fun with this guy and make him work. Now, how to convert this model. Whenever I convert any models, I normally try to use plastic as it's so much easier to work with than converting a metal model. 
like a hundred times easier. For orc conversions, the most popular subject I start with is normally a plastic Mordor orc archer or a plastic Urukai scout archer. I find that I never come close to using all of the orc or Urukai archers that come in the plastic kits, so I'm always looking to find a way to convert them into models with swords or shields or spears. First off, I don't normally take one-third archers in either army, and secondly, there are metal models available that are nicer, so I use those. I had a Mordor Orc Archer that had been painted by someone else in my bits box, so I dug him out and went to work. I find that the archers that have the hand that just released the arrow held away from their body to be the easiest to use, as you can just cut that arm off and get started. The poses where this arm is molded against the body require a little bit more work. I'll post some pictures up on our Facebook page showing this conversion. So go take a look at those when you have a chance. North of the Shire podcast. And it's a page, not a group. I started the conversion by cutting off the bow above and below his hand and completely removing the other arm. I filed away all of his face and most of his head as he was looking to his left and I wanted him looking straight ahead. I also removed the plastic tab attached to the bottom of his feet. I have a big box of skulls from Games Workshop that I wanted to use in this conversion, so I got that out and removed a few pieces from the sprue. I took the large skull of some sort of demon or antelope, which I was going to use as a face mask. I then worked on getting this to fit properly over the model's face and glued it in place. I used another similar skull and attached it to the back of the arm that had been holding the bow to be his shield. I wanted this hero to have a spear and throwing spears. So I cut away the arrows in his quiver and then drilled out the top to make a cavity there. I then inserted the tips of three spears into that cavity and glued them in place. Throwing spears acquired. Finally, I found an arm holding a spear and glued that in place of where I had removed his other arm, and this guy was equipped the way I wanted him. To finish him off, I just green stuff in some hair to cover the ugly join at the back of his neck and added some hair braids from another model I had in my bits box. Lastly, I did up his base. I put down three layers of thin cork, with the top layer being broken up a little. As I had the skull set already out, I added a few skulls to the base as well. Then I glued on some of my gravel I use for basing to finish off. I had cut the slotta tab off the feet of the model, so I drilled a couple of holes in his feet and added pins. Then mounted him to the base and it was done. My next hobby project for this company will to be convert a model for my general. He was still at 4 XP, so he should finally get a roll in his path after the next game. I've got a little conversion in mind for this guy as well. I was thinking I'll make him heavily armored and, and equipped with a spear and shield. 
I think this is the weapon combo that is going to be the most common in this warband. I thought I'd use an iron shield from a dwarf vault warden for something different. That's it for the conversions for today, but at some point I'll also consider making a display board. I want to finish off talking a little bit about our perspective on hobbying. I often say that I'm not much of a painter, but having said that, I do enjoy painting and I think I'm reasonably competent at it. It's just that there are so many other creative sides to the hobby that I enjoy just as much as painting models. So when I see a pile of 50 models that need to be painted, all I see is a lot of time I won't be able to spend on other parts of the hobby I enjoy. Like converting or sculpting models, writing, either creative writing or coming up with new rules, scenarios, or so on, making and painting terrain, organizing events and game days, competitive play, 3D printing, and then there's the whole content creator side of thing, whether you're into doing video, audio, or blogging. Even editing video or audio can be an entire hobby on its own. There's just so much to do and so many ways to express yourself in this hobby, and I like to try everything. I know a lot of people who just do one or two things on that list, and that's awesome, like paint models or do creative writing around the hobby. You see incredible examples of this stuff online all the time, beautifully painted models, stunning terrain, and so on. People that focus their attention on a couple of things in this way can really up their game and attain some incredible results. I think this type of drive to get as good as you can be at something is what enables people to become things like doctors or engineers or musicians. Thank goodness for those people and their devotion to their vocations. I'm just not one of those people. My mom and dad both passed away in 2016, and I often find myself thinking of them when I'm sitting quietly working on my hobby. I realize it's because of them that I enjoy this hobby so much. I come from a very artistic family, so the environment I grew up in was a very creative one. My mother was an artist and my father was a storyteller, a singer, and a joker. As a kid, I was always encouraged to try different things, so I learned how to draw, how to paint, and even did a bit of sculpting. I used to spend a ton of time on my own, just making things out of cardboard, toothpicks, and foam. However, I never stayed with anything long enough to become really good at it. I was more focused on becoming competent in something, and once I'd done that, I'd move on to something else. I never did follow my father's love for music. I've always kind of regretted that. However, I did share his love for comedy, and as a kid that grew up in the 70s, I spent hours and hours watching shows with him like Monty Python's Flying Circus or The Carol Burnett Show, and then I'd reenact their skits, talk in strange voices, and learn silly walks. I'm not sure if things like that can be defined as time well spent or just a lot of fun. 
Either way, I'm pretty sure the results of those youthful pursuits eventually influenced my daughter, who has gone on to pursue a career in theater arts, starting with acting in school, then professionally in stage management, and then as a production manager for a small theater. This kind of artistic wanderlust eventually became the cornerstone of my hobby time. But when I look back on things, I can see now how this also found its way into my education and my professional life. I work for a custom manufacturing company and depending on what day of the week it is, my job title is production planner, production scheduler, or production coordinator. Essentially, I sit at the crossroads of where design and technical meet production. So I spend a good deal of my time interpreting creative drawings, explaining technical drawings to our fabricators, working with subcontractors, building bill of materials, and trying to balance the workload of a factory against its manufacturing capacity. I really don't think I could do the job I do today without having spent so many hours doing all those different and creative things as a kid, like sketching designs, making structures from toothpicks, assembling plastic model kits, and sculpting in clay. It's funny how if you look at it from a certain perspective, our hobby can really be a reflection of who we are as people. I'd love to hear other people's views on this type of thing. Does your hobby reflect who you are, either personally or professionally? Is your hobby an artistic release for you? Or maybe you are using the hobby to try and find some spark of artistic talent within yourself. Or maybe the hobby has nothing to do with artistic expression and is more of a cathartic tool or a way to prove your skill as a competitor. Please let me know your thoughts on this. Comment on our Facebook page or email us at northoftheshirepodcast1, the number one, at gmail.com. Anyway, thanks again for joining me for another episode here on North of the Shire. It's over! Turn it off! Turn it off! Don't you have anything better to do? Go and paint a miniature or something! Oi, are we done? I gotta take care of some urgent business. Go on then.